0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Row Bible Church. For more information, visit missionrowbiblechurch.com. Every time I climb into this pulpit, first thing that stares back at me is that quote engraved here on the pulpit from John 12:21 which says, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." And that song is such a beautiful reflection of that heart, is that we come to Christ through his word, and we come to the word to see and understand Christ. Winston Churchill, is one of my historical heroes, probably credited single-handedly for ending World War II by the use of his rhetoric and his ability to speak, was once heard saying this, My great fear is the prospect of speaking to the same group of people more than once, end quote. Preaching is the exact opposite of that. Uh, Preaching is something that I am deeply familiar with. It is something that I am intimately acquainted with. It is something that never, ever, 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 ever leaves my mind. In our study of the church, we have to come to this moment where we talk about what we do with this thing called preaching. So in looking at the flow of ecclesiology of what the church believes about the church, we have to stop and pause and talk and think for a moment about preaching. Now I have to confess to you as a preacher that this is a a constant study for me, but if I can just kind of pull back the curtain and and give you a little insight into what that's like week in and week out, it it is... um, and this isn't feel sorry for Rick moment, but it's, it's not easy. And one of the reasons it's not easy is you. You have such a high degree of biblical acumen. You've, you've been taught and trained. I inherited uh, this sacred space on this stage from a man who preached God's word for, for two decades. And your expectation that the man who shows up standing here ought to have something to say on behalf of God and his word is a wonderful but ever-increasing pressure. I know that I finish on Sunday night and the first thing I do when I wake up Monday morning is, is I, I say I gotta start over and you gotta start over twice and then you add the fact that we have a, a theology class and different classes. It's just always relentless. I, I tell the seminary guys that preaching is a lot like being on that escalator going down and no matter how many steps you try to take back up, you're eventually gonna hit the bottom. What that means is, now this is odd, just follow my thinking for a second. I went to seminary to learn this, Okay. For the preacher, Sunday always follows Saturday. I know what you're thinking. Well, it does for all of us. Well, not in the same way. If I can just be honest, it doesn't end the same way. Uh, Kim says that uh, uh, I get uh, PMS on Saturday, preaching mode syndrome. My eyes kind of roll back in my head and you just get really distant because of the challenge. And, and frankly, can I tell you the fear the horrific fear of standing in front of you and opening God's word and daring to say this is what it means? The most popular preaching book written in the last few decades was a book by a liberal man and his whole point in in publishing this preaching book was to say that objective truth, that a man standing up and telling you something uh, from the position of a speech, he calls speeching, He says, that's not really preaching. Really, we should get rid of speeching where a man stands up in front of people and gives an oration. And we should go back to getting people involved. Having giant, small groups. Is that an oxymoron? Giant, small groups. This is what he said. The practice of applying scripture to our lives is not the established Christian tradition but rather the product of more recent ways of thinking about the church. That was so radical, I want to read it again. This gentleman says, the practice of applying scripture to our lives is not the established tradition of of the church, but rather the product of more recent ways of thinking about church. Our post-enlightenment ways of thinking move us to want answers rather than the questions. So did you wake up this morning just thinking, I can't wait to find all the questions I don't have answers to? To seek solutions rather than to ponder the problem itself. We have, over the last century, become a people who believe in answers and application. We have little patience for ambiguity and uncertainty. As a result, the question of the church has increasingly become, what does the Bible have to do with my life today? The question has become so all-encompassing that the success of a church has often measured by the pastor's ability to answer that question, end quote. You hear what he's saying? That in his critique of the modern church, we've actually, there are some churches, Mission Road Bible Church would be one, who actually believe that the pastor's speeching, his teaching, is supposed to give you answers for your life from God's word objectively. And he's critical of that. He goes on, should we not find a more integrated and honored place for the testimony of our people? This testimony can certainly be moved beyond our simple conversion stories that have become trite and overused in some traditions. This testimony can and should be offered in narratives and as complex as the Bible itself. It can and should be listened to with the same sense of reverence and respect as the Bible itself, end quote. That's the world we're living in. A world in which people's testimony, people's experience, people's understanding of life has risen to the same level of authority as the Bible. In fact, if you go on to uh, uh, enter into any conversation, many conversations I should say, with a lot of so-called believers, it won't be long before this is the issue that comes up. is What do you believe about the Bible? Does your church teach that the Bible is the authority? We live in such an anti authoritarian, anti authority society that people don't want to be told what to do. All you have to do is see that the the, uh, prediction of Paul, the prophecy of Paul, that in the end times evil men would proceed from bad to worse. Just watch the evening news. I have never in my life seen the shift that's happened, even in the last five years. It's going to hell fast, it's slipping into eternity fast. We sang this morning, as I ran my hell-bound race, and you see the world racing and running headlong into hell without the authority of God's word to say, stop, turn around, listen to the gospel. Open your Bibles just for a moment to the book of Nehemiah. (coughs) The pattern for preaching God's word goes back into the Old Testament, obviously. A little background. They were re-excavating the walls of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. As they did so, they came upon a copy of the law. Where did they find the copy of the law? Well, they had lost the copies of the law for for a a few generations, and and people were were guesstimating and trying to remember what God's word said. And then they found a copy hidden in one of the walls. Now, what happened there was... Some faithful king had been faithful. Deuteronomy 17 said that that every king was supposed to make a handwritten copy of the law. Why? So he could never say, I did not know that the Bible said that. They find this book. They have a revival. I love Ezra 8, excuse me, Nehemiah 8 verse 4. Ezra comes and Ezra describes stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. There's the... I'd have a pulpit, and it wasn't plexiglass; it was, it was wooden. Verse eight. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense, so that they understood the reading. There's the foundational theological premise for expository preaching. Now, we have to distinguish a couple of of words, exposit and expose. I know some people think expository preaching comes from the word expose. It doesn't. It's a different word. It means to exposit, which has a much stronger authoritative tone. You can look it up. Exposit means to set forth, not just to expose. It means to put in front of you, to to put it in in, in your way to trip over or to build your life on. That's what Ezra was doing here. And there are a couple of things going on in this passage they read it, they explained it or translated it, better at Hebrew uh, translation a translation of the Hebrew words, really, to unpack it, to explain it. They read it, they explained it, they gave sense, so they understood exactly what it said. Preaching is public hermeneutics. hermeneutics are, is a science of understanding what uh, uh, how you interpret piece of literature or how you interpret the Bible. Preaching is public hermeneutics. In other words, what happens in the pulpit ought to be an example of what should happen at home. And if, if something happens here and you say, look at that, and you say, well, I don't know how you can get that from there, and you can't find it for yourself at home, then the person standing here has failed. Preaching is just public hermeneutics. This is what we do and how we apply, how we approach the Scripture. Turn over to the book of 1 Timothy. Excuse me, 2 Timothy. I just want to lay out some, some general principles here and draw some conclusions with you. 2 Timothy. Now, you know 2 Timothy very well. This is in the real estate of the pastoral epistles. The, this is uh, Paul who's left Timothy at Ephesus to pastor the church that he had founded and pastor there for three years. He's now handed the baton off to Timothy. Timothy is pastoring this church. I often think about the church at Ephesus. Wouldn't that have been a good church to go to? Who are your pastors? Paul and Timothy. Pretty good. As he's climbing toward the climax of 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison. He's in a Mamertine prison. He's cold. He asks for a a coat at the end of this epistle. He asks for, for parchments. He wants something to study and a way to keep warm. He is on his last lap weeks or months from his beheading. He's in encouraging and he's challenging Timothy. And we find out a few things just almost as, as an aside about the role and the goal of preaching and the role and the goal of exposition and the role and the goal of, of uh, Bible explanation. When he talks about Timothy's testimony, look at chapter three, verse, well, let's pick up where we, we talked about it a minute ago, verse 13. <coughs> but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, Deceiving and being deceived. What a statement that is about our day. You, however, what a great statement. In the flow of people deceiving and being deceived, you be different. You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Great parenting advice here, counsel. That from childhood you have known the sacred writings How did he know that? We find out from his mother and his grandmother back in chapter one. From childhood he had been taught these things. The sacred writings, the scriptures, the Old Testament uh, books of the Bible, which are able to give you, look at this, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That is such a power-packed last end of that verse. Look at what he's saying. This is the Old Testament, folks. This is not even the New Testament. The Old Testament gives you the wisdom, the understanding, the, the insight that leads to salvation. How? Through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Talk about sewing the two uh, uh, testaments together. Paul says, Timothy, you understood. Your heart was prepared to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because you rightly understood the Older Testament. All Scripture... I don't want to rock anyone's boat, but he's contextually here talking about the Old Testament. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the pastor, the preacher, the elder, the evangelist, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Obviously, that scripture there, uh, uh, grapha, passa, the Grapha, the, Pasa, all of the scripture uh, includes the New and the Older Testament. But because The the Bible is sewn together to show us who Christ is, that salvation is in Christ, that the New Testament explains that to us. Now we go on, erase the chapter for a moment. Because of that, he says, I solemnly charge you. Now, this is a staccato stack of accountability like no other verse in the entire Bible. Just just lay these levels of accountability on top of each other like bricks. I solemnly charge you. We have the accountability of Paul. Paul. To Timothy. In the presence of God, is that calling heaven down to earth? And of Christ Jesus, the great Savior, the man, the, the, the God man, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. He's the one before whom we'll all stand. And by his appearing and by his kingdom. And by the way, he's coming. Do you hear how that crescendo builds for accountability? That's a big charge. Based on all that, preach the word. In other words, proclaim what God has said. How, what does that look like? Being ready in season and out of season. Sometimes you have time to prepare, and sometimes you don't. I had a guy who trained me in seminary who said, a preacher ought to be ready to preach, pray, or die with a second's notice. Reprove. Rebuke and exhort. Do you know that all three of those terms have a negative connotation? They have the idea that you are correcting someone's life by virtue of preaching the word, meaning that, drumroll ready, preaching has a fundamental negative tone because it's dealing with sinners. There's positive aspects. There's positive dimensions. We see the gospel every week. But we cannot come and look into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ and be happy about how we're living. That's why it involves reproving, rebuking, exhorting. And then he also says, with great patience and instruction. And that should harken back over, by the way, to what Paul said in uh, uh, earlier that... Um, The Lord's bondservant is not to be verse um, 24 of chapter (coughs) 3, chapter 2 rather. The Lord's slave, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. There should not not be angry preachers. We have patience. we're, we're, We're gracious. Something I fight all the time. I can get frustrated and ramped up pretty easily. You correct with gentleness, he says in verse 25. Back over to chapter 4. For the time will come, and can we say the time is here, when they will not endure sound doctrine. Very interesting Greek phrase. It means the ability to sit long, endure long sufferingly under doctrine. To sit for a long time. Uh, Just to be uh, candid with you, uh, when, when, when I decided that that it was time to start pursuing a senior pastorate. We were looking at a few churches and there was one church that contacted me and one of the questions they asked is, well, how long do you preach? And I said, well, I don't know, 45 minutes to 75 sometimes. And they said, oh, no, no, we, we never go more than 20 minutes. So Mission Road gave me a shot, so thank you. Time will come where they will not sit long under doctrine, endure sound doctrine. That, that's both in the space of your your own preaching time, and also over time. By the way, why is that a problem? Because the nature of it is to reprove and rebuke and exhort. You can always measure the spiritual maturity of anyone by their ability to be corrected by God's word. So what are they going to do? But wanting to have their ears tickled, now we find out the great challenge to exposition, having... Tickled ears, which means having an entertainment session, going and having a time where your ears are satisfied. Ear tickling means it was a, a Greco-Roman uh, flow and philosophy where you would go and people would say things that were pleasing. There was no entertainment. The, only the upper echelon could enjoy the, the theater. So what you would have is sophists, traveling speakers, who would come, stand on a street corner, and try to talk to grab a crowd. And they would tickle the ears. They were, they were fun and funny and engaging and good illustrators and all the, all the things that would make you want to hear them. But that's not the main part. Most of us look at this verse and we think, well, these are ear-tickling desires." Now, the main issue, the main problem is still ahead in this verse. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires I was just reading in a paper I think it was Thursday or Friday how uh, there's a certain denomination that continues to seek out its 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 upper echelon to accept homosexuality from the pastorate down and the reason is it was very very candid the reason is this is the way we believe in the way we live we want teachers who will teach in the way we believe Isn't that backwards? This is the way we live. Let's find teachers in accordance to our own desires. Do you see this verse taking shape every day in our lives? It's incredible. And we'll turn away their ears from truth and we'll turn aside to myths. We can go on and on about what that means. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. To preach the word necessitates that you will be in hardship. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul says, the time of my departure has come. And I love verse 7. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but, here it goes, to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul basically says, I have been faithful to the very thing I'm telling you, Timothy, to be faithful to. Now, back up to uh, 1 Timothy chapter four. No big outline, just wanna convince you tonight. First Timothy chapter four, verse 11. <coughs> 1 Timothy four is that great section where Paul is being very specific to Timothy about how he is to be, who he is to be, and how he's to enact his ministry with the Ephesians. Uh, He talks about the saviorhood of God in verse 10, and this is, prescribe and teach these things. That prescribe is a pretty soft translation. It's a Greek word that means command with authority and keep on commanding. Said another way, he's telling Timothy, the pulpit is not a place for suggestions, but if those suggestions, if those mandates, if those commands come from the preacher's life instead of from God, there's a great danger. He then goes on, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those to believe, then here it is. Here's your big case for expository preaching. Bob said, can you prove it? Here you go. Ready? Until I come, Paul says, Timothy, here it is. Here's your mandate. Give attention to to the reading, it says public reading in the NAS, literally the, the, the public reading, standing up and saying, This is what the Bible says. Remember what Ezra did? They read it. To exhortation and to teaching. There it is. There's a combination between Ezra and what he did and Paul, what he told Timothy to do. You read it, you explain it, and then you find the application and the implication. Now can I talk to you for a minute about the opposite of what this gentleman, his name is Doug Paget, had wrote about preaching earlier? Application and implication. I think too fast we run toward application when we should first run toward implication. Let me explain what I mean. Um, Implicated, it almost has a criminal uh, connotation if he was implicated in a crime. But there's also a sense of that word that ha- it's not negative, you were implicated. There, been, in other words, you found an implication for yourself in that. Kim and I were at a, uh, a friend's house years ago and our, our kids were much younger and uh, their kids were, were much older. They were probably about uh, the size of uh, the age of my kids now. We're sitting at dinner. Our boys were at home being babysat and they had an interaction with one of their sons. It was really fascinating. He had said something he probably shouldn't have said. And the way they handled it was so wonderful. It was gracious and it preserved his dignity. It was, it was just a really sweet situation. As we were leaving, Kim and I were just talking about that. We said, did you see what they did? That was incredible. But the way they did what they did with this older son was way beyond what I could have done with a five-year-old. But the principle was so obvious, we were able to say that principle still works like this. That's finding an implication. I think that's what we should be looking for more in the Bible than even blatant application. Because, you know, be careful. Be very careful how you answer this question. How much of the Bible was written to you versus for you? The answer is very little of it was written to you, but it was all written for you. So if Paul is telling the Ephesians that, you know what, in Ephesians 5, there is a corresponding relationship between marriage and the gospel and the gospel of marriage, we could say, wow, Paul really encouraged the Ephesians to do that. I'm glad that they knew that. That's great. Our job is to say, what's the implication for what Paul told these Ephesians in in this historical, literal context that comes over as an eternal principle into our world? Looking for implications. Now, there are some passages that are pure application. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Not a lot of context needed for that, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, their neighborhood, were in a little stucco than ours. Is, so, No, it's the same thing. It's looking for implications. So Paul says to Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and teaching. Literally, it's just the reading. The idea of Scripture was, was supplied. One of the things I love about um, uh, the, the church that I, I came from before I came to Mission Road, the church that I got to come to here on Mission Road, is that there's a very deliberate time in the service where we read the Bible. Just let it speak. Just, And I have to confess that more times than not when we're reading through Matthew, I just want to stop and preach on that passage. and It's just so engaging, especially the narratives. What's this all for, though? We have to be careful because there are those who would criticize us and tell us that we are bibliolaters. Ever heard that? We just worship the Bible and not the God of the Bible. And we have to be careful because you can certainly do that. The point is not to be right on doctrine. The point is for doctrine to make you righteous. Two different things. Who do you think the most accurate theologian outside of the Trinity is today? Probably Satan. You think he doesn't understand it? You think he doesn't get it? And yet... His accuracy has not landed him in good stead with God. The goal is not just being right. Oh, it's, it's being right. You want to be right and not wrong, orthodox, not unorthodox. But if you're right without being righteous, there's a word for that in the New Testament. It's called Phariseeism. Now, back to Ephesians. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 4. What is the goal of these kind of <coughs> exhortations that are rooted in explaining what the bible says? We'll talk more about what that means exactly in a moment um, this is to me one of the most intriguing passages in the entire new testament it's it, it's 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 the most unexpected passage if if you've if you've not looked at it carefully look at verse seventeen ephesians four seventeen so I say This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Stop right there. Gentiles, unbelievers walk in the uselessness of their thinking and their mind. They think according to the flesh. Back in chapter two, it says that. They're by nature children of wrath. All of their desires are bent toward the flesh, bent toward self-gratification. Why? Because that's where their mind directs their attention to. Therefore, as we'll see in a minute, The Christian focus of preaching is to fundamentally rearrange and reorient the mind. It's a rational uh, decision. It's a rational pursuit, not just emotional. The futility of their mind being darkened, here it is again, where? In their understanding how they think. Excluded from the life of God because of the, here's another one, ignorance. See all these mental knowing words? that is in them because of the hardness of their heart, another uh, mission control central term. And they have become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality or sexuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now what you would expect is Paul to say something like this, but, but that's, that's not how you learn to live. I taught you better than that. You should think differently than that. He doesn't say that. Look at the goal of exposition here. But you did not learn the Bible that way, verse 20. But you did not learn doctrine that way. But you did not learn to think right. What does it say? It says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Indeed, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus. Therefore, exposition that doesn't ultimately land on glorifying and and lost in wonder over the person of Christ is not true, genuine exposition. The goal of our Bible study. It's to meet, know, love, live for, interact with the living, risen Savior. It's not just to get our doctrine in line. And I'm all about getting our doctrine in line. But to be right without being righteous gets us no traction with God. Just devotionally. So are you learning Christ in your Bible reading, your Bible study? Is what you study, does what you're reading, does what you're learning, does that lead you to learn more about Christ? For to me, to live is isn't that an odd formulation? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Ephesians, excuse me, Colossians 4 tells us our mind should be stayed on him. Why? Because he says Christ is our what? Life. How can Christ become your life? It's when you see that the Bible is entirely focused on, on making him known and making us know how hard it is for him to be known in our wicked hearts. So where does that land us? Every <coughs> pastor struggles, like I said, every week. to What am I gonna say? I mean, it's you have to... Uh, poor Winston Churchill didn't know how easy he had it. I mean, you, you keep coming back. Can I just tell you and confess to you, if I had to figure out something to say that was interesting to you every week, I, I would go mad. I'm just not that creative. I'm not that clever. I'm certainly not funny. I'm not very handsome to look at. It's not a, I don't have a lot of things going for me except the next verse. We want to be a church This the next verse church. Let's just see what it says next. I mean, I'm a little bit ahead of my study, but I gotta confess, some Sunday nights, get in bed, and I just look at the next passage and just say, I can't wait to get there next week. That's talking about expository preaching from the standpoint of the pulpit out. But can I just gloat for a second on, on you? It's really difficult to do exposition to people who don't want it, who don't have an appetite for it. I hope, I think, that the reason that you're here is that church is built on the exposition of God's word and children's, the junior high, high school, college, all the way from the cradle to the grave, the pulpit. You are people who have chosen not to go to an ear-tickling church. You're people who said, we want to sit long and endure sound doctrine. I was driving home <coughs> with my wife today, and after we were talking about traducianism and creationism and federalism and seminalism today, and I was just going, honey, I, just, I think I just killed my church. I, th- I think they're, they're just dead, somewhere laying on the side of the road with a dictionary going, what is this little man talking about? I love your appetite for for truth. I love the fact that you come to church. I had uh, uh, <clears throat> some Italians here a few weeks ago, as you know, and they uh, uh, Johnny, who was telling me, who preached for us that day, was telling me that the, the the sweetest sound that a preacher can hear, he heard in our in our church. He said, everybody turned to the passage in John, and he had us turn. There was a cross reference, and he said. Look over at, it and I I forget the reference, and he said, the sound of turning pages was deafening. That's so encouraging. Just a little footnote, I, I, I don't put scripture on the screen, I've been to churches that do, there may be some good reasons to do that, but I don't want to ever do that, because I want you to look at your Bible, I want you to look at your Bible and say, I, I, you got to prove that to me by by what the Bible says. Also, you need to know that preachers are not infallible. Uh, I have done things, said things that I wish I hadn't. I've had to correct myself. Um, The only thing that's infallible is this book. But it's understandable. Don't we have to start there? I was in high school, and this uh, gentleman was teaching the book of Revelation to our high school um, Sunday school class. I don't know how he ever got to be a Sunday school teacher. And he was uh, telling us that we were looking at the book of Revelation and the end times, and he said, look, no one really knows what this means because way back in the day, all of these symbols, there was, there was a code book as a, as a key book that told you what all these symbols were, and that's been lost long ago, so we have no hope of ever knowing what the book of Revelation is about. First of all, how do you know that? Who, who told you that? And secondly, then why are we wasting our time here with you Preaching is public hermeneutics. The greatest question, the most important question that you have to ask when you pick up this book is this. Did God, does God have a speech impediment? Knowing what you know of God, does God have trouble saying what he means, meaning what he says. Obviously, we would say no. So if there's a breakdown, is it on his side or on our side? It's always on our side. That's why Paul tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved as a, remember what the word is? Workman. It's hard work. The joy of talking about exposition, though, is to tell you that it's not just the job of the preacher and the pulpit to do that. It's your job, it's your privilege, it's your task as well to open up the Bible. One of the great differences between (coughs) old line Catholicism, which held the mass in Latin and held the truth away from the people and said, we're the only people who can arbitrate and interpret the truth, so you shouldn't read the Bible. The difference between that and Protestantism is we want to turn the Bible over to you. What the Puritans used to say, it's The word of God is a lion. Just open the cage and let it do its business. So why do we do expository preaching? It's rooted in, we've talked about this over and over, the three big eyes of the Bible, right? Won't take time to do this. We've talked about this before. The Bible is inspired. That word in uh, uh, 2 Timothy, uh, uh, inspired by God, means breathed by God. It's inspired by God. Because it's inspired by God, it was inerrant in its uh, original autographs and inerrant in its meaning now. And because of that, it's infallible. It is utterly unfailable in all that it says. If that is true, then the question we have to ask and answer is this. If this really is, think about this, if this really is God's word, if God really has spoken and he said something and it's in a book, God said it, and he put it in a book. Is there anything better or competitive with that than to stand up in front of people and talk about in church? Only if you're trying to tickle ears. (laughs) Let me say it again. For us to be an expository church, you got to put your seatbelt on, got to put your helmet on, you got to buckle your chin strap because it is a confronting book. But on the other side of those confrontations, those rebuking, those exhortations, those reproving, those corrections, on the other side of that is training in righteousness. And I hope that's, I think that's why you do what you do and why you're here, right? So, that's expository preaching. If this is God's word, if God has said things and they're in a book, Is there anything more important than to just talk about what he said and explain it? That's why we do exposition. We set it forth. We set out the meaning. We try to understand it. We try to find the implication and sometimes even the application. We are living in a world that has so many attacks on God's word. I mean, I've got a whole list of them here I could could, uh, talk about, but maybe we'll do that another time. Primary attack on God's word, though, let me show you one more passage in first corinthians chapter 2 <coughs> the primary attack that you're going to face on God's word is from friends who don't believe it and you just need to have a little a little context you need to have a little air support from the lord on why this is happening first corinthians 2 verse 14 <coughs> Paul says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Those are contained in God's Word. For they are foolishness to him. He cannot, cannot, look at the ability there. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things... Yet he himself is appraised by no one. What he's saying there is that your judgment is from God, not anyone else, in respect to the fact that you understand what God said. Why are there people who are looking for ear tickling sermons? Why are the people looking for for uh, uh, non substantive Bible studies? If we can put that in quotation mark. Why do people push back on you for being such a fool for believing that this is God's word and that it says what it means and means what it says? And a snake talked in the, in the garden, and the Red Sea uh, was parted. Oh, why do people think you're a fool? Take a deep breath and remember, because look at that word. They cannot understand. Spiritual inability. How does God turn the light on in the understanding? By explaining his word. His word, used by a spirit, turns on the understanding that his word was written by a spirit. You say, that's circular reasoning, and I would say, you're right. Everyone's reasoning is circular. The question is, where do you draw the circle? So take solace, take a deep breath. You are going to be considered a fool for believing this book. I mean, most of you gave up multiple hours on Sunday the great day off to come and hear someone give you a speech you got speeched at as the that Doug Padgett says you 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 had speeching today but that's always been the way God has designed it someone set aside so that they can study God's word and give implications and applications from an orientation around what the author said to the original audience and understand that in its original context and in its Contemporary context. John Stock calls that standing between two worlds. He says the scholar only cares what the Bible meant, and the person in the pew only cares what the Bible means, and exposition bridges those gaps. It stands between those two worlds. And I didn't get through a lot of my notes. Why do we preach expositionally? A little simple, because we believe God's word is important enough to do so, because it's God's word. I don't know if that proved the point, Bob, but I'm sticking with that one. Let's pray together. There's just so much more to be able to say about this, Father, but the simple confession of our heart is we believe your word is your word. We believe that your word is is incarnate and explained in a written word. We believe that it leads to Jesus, understanding him better, to learn him from what we learn about truth. So rearrange, reorient, re-engage our minds and hearts into the fact that you've given us a book. You've given us a Bible. Father, we have so many Bibles. We have them on our phones. We have them in our living rooms, in our bedstands. Oh, Father, please. Please, please woo us to Yourself through Your Word. We pray for now, in the endurance of the church here at 7820 Mission Road, that You would hold this pulpit accountable to say what You've said, all You've said, and no more than what You've said according to what is written. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.